This is The Guardian. Today, what's emboldening Britain's far right? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The far right in Britain have always had the same aim, to spread fear. They were capitalising on local opposition to refugees and trying to co-opt anti-migrant campaigns. Fear of migrants, fear of queerness, fear of feminism, fear of anyone who divests from their vision of Britishness. White, straight, Christian and hyper-masculine. We were campaigning to shelter children from a corrupting rainbow of poison. In recent years, they've mobilised mainly online, using both mainstream social media and closed chat groups to share the most bigoted views. But in recent months, they've been emboldened and they're back on the streets. Outside a hotel giving refuge to asylum seekers, the message from protesters is clear. You're not welcome here. They've protested outside hotels across the country where people seeking asylum are staying. All men, no women and children. Whole hotel is completely packed with illegal migrants. Merseyside's assistant chief constable labelling the night's destruction as dangerous and disgraceful. In London, they've picketed Drag Queen Story Hour, a storytelling event for kids. They claim that drag queens are grooming children. And then protesters gathered outside. They were very upset about it. Some of those protesters quite unpleasant. Some of them probably have reasonable objections, but there's a lot... Mixed in up Oxford in this weekend, they joined a protest against the introduction of environmental measures, saying they amounted to a climate lockdown. And the same day, outside a hotel in Rotherham, two people were arrested for their part in threatening the asylum seekers inside. I'm not here for crimes. I'm not here for war. I'm not here to do something illegal. Because if I do these things, so why did I come from my country to this country? So I come here for a safe life. So I do the best thing for this country. Especially for this country. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the new tactics of Britain's far right. Diane Taylor, you've been reporting on the protests that far-right groups staged outside a hotel in Knowsley, where people who were seeking asylum were staying. The details of what happened have been emerging over the past week or so. What went on that night? 
So it was Friday evening, February the 10th. When disturbances broke out in an area of Nosley, close to a hotel called the Sweets Hotel, which the Home Office was using to accommodate asylum seekers from a range of conflict zones, including places like Syria, uh, Iran. The protests seemed to start quite suddenly and seemed to take a lot of people by surprise. Initially, it wasn't known exactly who they were or where they were from. Protesting, holding banners saying, this is our town. A police van was set on fire. Stones and rocks were thrown. Fireworks were set off. It was a seed that we haven't seen in this country relating to anti-migrant protests for many years. It was certainly a sea change from things I'd witnessed before. And what was different about this protest from other protests against asylum seekers was it seemed to be largely made up of local Nosley residents, although there had been a lot of activity from the far right stoking up hatred against asylum seekers in the days and weeks before the protest happened. What kind of narratives are they spreading then about people who are seeking asylum? The two main points that far-right groups seem to, to make when it comes to asylum seekers, both of which are factually incorrect, are, first of all, that they're stealing housing from British people, particularly from homeless British veterans who are forced to shiver on the streets while asylum seekers luxuriate in the UK's top hotels. That is incorrect. And the second trope that is used is that male asylum seekers are sexually harassing young white British girls. And what evidence, if any, were they using to try and support those claims? They don't seem to be very big on evidence. They put big red headings on their leaflets saying the truth. And, and then they make these claims that they don't back up at all. There's also a video... How old are you? 25. I'm only 15. Yeah, so the, the video appeared to have been circulated widely on social media. Somebody who is apparently a schoolgirl, although we don't know that because she has her back to the camera, so it's hard to ascertain exactly what her age is. Talking to somebody who is allegedly an asylum seeker, but there's there's no evidence that the person is actually an asylum seeker and he is asking for the girl's phone number. No, sorry. You don't do this in this country. It's, it's, you go to jail if you do this. It felt slightly odd to watch. The police investigated and uh, apparently tracked down the man in the video and said they were taking no further action. Okay, so there's been this febrile atmosphere this discontent bubbling among some of the people who live in that area. So you might think that the police would have been expecting that something like this may happen at some point. How did they respond that night in Nosley? Uh, I mean, certainly the police did bring the disturbance under control. 
uh, and subsequently made 15 arrests and one person so far has been charged. They seemed to be taken by surprise by the intensity of the violence. They knew there was going to be a protest, so they weren't surprised about that. But the uh, the scenes of violence and setting the police van on fire were uh, unprecedented in recent years. Knowsley is a Labour stronghold. What have their politicians had to say about what's happened? Have they acknowledged that there's work that needs to be done in this community? What has surprised me is how little politicians have said about the events from Knowsley. And the Home Secretary put out a heavily criticised tweet. In the tweet, she referred to the alleged behaviour of some asylum seekers and said that wasn't justification for the disturbances. And Yvette Cooper, the Shadow Home Secretary, made a statement where she thanked the police for their work and condemned violence in, in very general terms. And the reason people are staying in those hotels is because it takes a long time for people's cases to to get processed through the system by the Home Office, isn't it? And, and in that intervening period, they're housed in hotels often. Yeah, what was happening before the pandemic is, is that hotels were hardly used at all. The vast, vast majority of asylum seeker accommodation provided by the Home Office was shared housing, which was a, an option preferred by asylum seekers because to a degree they could get on with their lives, cook, go to the library, walk around the streets. When the pandemic started, the Home Office switched to using more hotels and they, they now say they're, they're still using hotels, which everybody from the Home Office to asylum seekers to critics of Home Office policy, everybody says hotels are an unsuitable option. I'm just trying to imagine how it would have felt to be one of those people inside the hotel that night. Have you had chance to speak to any of them? I have, and the people inside the hotel were absolutely terrified, he said to me. I felt in great danger after some of the protesters burned the police car, smashed it, and attempted to break into the hotel's outer wall. Joe Mulhall, as the director of research at Hope Not Hate, you've been tracing how far-right groups in the UK are operating at the moment. Looking at what happened in Knowsley, how reflective would you say that is of the current situation? Yeah, I think the, the situation in Knowsley was shocking, but perhaps not surprising. I mean, we've seen a huge amount of activism from the far-right around migrant accommodation, in the last few years, and it's got much, much worse, like kind of year on year. And that ranges from small events where individuals turn up at hotels, housing asylum seekers through to kind of small demonstrations. Nosey was more worrying because of the scale, of course, you know, roughly 400 people. But where it is kind of emblematic of what we're seeing is this mixture of the far right went at Nosley the weeks beforehand, ramping up tensions. You then have a kind of local backlash and a local reaction, partly spurred on by a lot of mainstream rhetoric around asylum seekers and migrant accommodation. And then the far right were also there on the evening. So they ramp up the tensions and then they also go into the community when things do happen and, and try to kind of recruit off the back of it. 
So as well as going into the local community, what else did far-right groups do to mobilise people around this? They do a number of things. I mean, in certain cases, kind of patriotic alternative, which is an explicitly kind of fascist organisation, uh, were leafleting the area in the run-up to the demonstration. But we also saw videos by groups like Britain First, the kind of anti-Muslim far-right group. You've got to leave this. I'm filming a report for social media about the use of this hotel to house illegal migrants. Which turned up at the hotel in, 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 the, in the months beforehand, created social media content. As you can see, it's a vast hotel. Lots of illegal migrants staying now. We're being asked to leave by this gentleman. We have to leave by law, otherwise it's trespassing. And that's what we've seen a lot of in the last few years, is far-right groups turning up at accommodation for migrants, filming content, and then pumping it out on their social media channels. And it's that sort of content which results in a lot of the anger and the tensions, both within the far-right, and in the case of Nosy, of course, they've spilt out beyond that into the wider community. Have any particular far-right groups taken responsibility for what happened at Nosley? No, so most of them have sought to distance themselves from it. I mean... The initial reporting around what happened in Nosy often attributes it to, to patriotic alternative, but that wasn't necessarily true. While the far right had certainly ramped up tensions in the area in the run-up to the event, they didn't specifically organise it themselves. So patriotic alternative came out and said they didn't organise it, and, and it looks like they didn't. But what they did do, of course, was ramp up tensions and then have sought to exploit it off the back. They actually sent some activists the next day to the same location to, to kind of take pictures of themselves with the banner. So they like owning and trying to basically get political capital out of what happened. But they weren't directly the organisers of the event. A lot of that seemed to be much more locally driven. The far right has been organising in the UK under different names in different guises for decades. The Leicester branch of the National Front is one of the strongest in the country. They come down with most and down he went. The English Defence League is here, and we are here for you! Yep, we are indeed what you call racist. I don't think it is, but more important... How do the ideologies espoused by today's major groups differ from, say, those of the National Front, the BMP, the English Defence League? Well, in many ways, there's a very strong continuity of ideology, not just back to the things like the National Front, but right, right the way through to the, the immediate post-war period and perhaps even longer than that. I mean, they target particular groups with enmity and they often use the similar sorts of rhetorical devices. You know, a lot of the discussion right now is about the sexual threat posed by immigrants to asylum seekers, about how they pose like a, a physical threat to children and women, which is very similar to the rhetoric we would have seen from, as you say, the British National Party, the English Defence League, the National Front before them and beyond. Now, through the ages, the target of their ire does shift. You know, in the 1930s, the biggest groups primarily focused on the Jewish community. In the immediate post-war period, they increasingly focused on the black community and, and South Asia community during post-war immigration. In recent decades, it's been much more about Islam and Muslims, especially post-9-11. And at the moment, it's kind of migrants, asylum seekers, which is obviously very strongly tinged with anti-Muslim prejudice as well. I guess what's changed is the, the nature of the internet and social media, the forms of activism. So they might sound quite similar in some ways, but the internet has changed it in the sense that most of their activism now has at least one eye and sometimes two on how can this be used to put stuff online? How can it be used so the action itself is only part of the plan 
most of it is about the action being used to create content, which can then be shared to carry on recruiting and create anger. And as well as their targeting of migrants and immigrants, one community that also seems to be targeted at the moment by far-right groups is the trans community. What's happening there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a real fundamental pillar of the far-right's ideology at the moment. We have told people that we will protect our children no matter where the harm comes from. Transphobia, kind of anti-trans rhetoric has been something that has become increasingly prominent within the far-right groups that we monitor at Hope or Hate. But we are also here to oppose the rainbow of poison that seeks to eat away at the very moral foundation of our Western and Christian society. Well, I think there's a few reasons a for this. One is actually ideological. They see the trans community as a fundamental challenge to their notions of gender and identity, their notions of very traditional gender roles. They see it as a challenge to their worldview. Any rights being given to trans people undermines their understanding of how the family should work how society should look, what people should be doing in terms of gender roles. But there is also almost a parallel with the anti-migrant stuff in that they certainly see support for anti-trans rhetoric coming out of mainstream places, whether or not that's the media, politicians, journalists, more mainstream individuals. And so they see it as an issue that where there is widespread support for their discrimination and prejudice and possibly an opportunity to garner more mainstream acceptance. Such, the majority of normal people had a strong negative gut reaction to Drag Queen Story Hour. And by opposing it so openly, we reached out to those people. That means that not only did we reach a new audience... I know that one of the main groups that you've been focusing on in your research recently is Patriotic Alternative. Just tell us about them, if people have never heard of them. So Patriotic Alternative formed in 2019, and it was founded by a guy called Mark Collett. We are being replaced, and it's all right to be angry. At the you know, formerly a senior member of the British National Party under Nick Griffin many years ago, and they've kind of grown into the most active, explicitly fascist organisation in Britain for many, many years. It remains small in size, with its kind of core activist base being in the low hundreds. And their biggest events really having maybe 150, 200 people at them in terms of conferences. Quite small in size, but very active and very extreme. Mark Collier, as leader, has, has promoted Mein Kampf before. You know, there's Holocaust denial within the movement. Many of the individuals involved have been involved in explicit neo-Nazism. So it's very, very extreme. But what they're good at is they attempt to promote themselves as much more moderate. For them, it's about the family. It's about, you know, it's, it, they present this kind of external vision of them being quite a moderate group that just cares about their people. And their activist base, while small, is very, very active. We see it around the country every week, ranging from demonstrations increasingly, but like leafleting sessions, marches. And in the last year, there's been more of a tactical shift to base themselves in communities to try and mimic, in many ways, the tactics of the British National Party by going into communities that time and time again engaging with local people and setting themselves up as look to look like a local organisation. Who's most attracted to join Patriotic Alternative? So PA's membership is, is worryingly young in many ways, in very young men, although, you know, the deputy leader or second in command is a woman called Laura Towler. Part of that is because the rhetoric and ideology of the far right is explicitly misogynist. So part of the reason they don't suck in so many women into these movements is because by agreeing to engage in far-right politics, often you are agreeing to your own subjugation. 
but the movements are generally speaking largely dominated by men. And they obviously, many of them come out with these kind of online networks. Their big thing is about the, what they kind of see as white genocide, is, what, is how they would describe it. But this conspiracy theory that white people in Britain are being undermined and attacked, there was a conscious plan through multiculturalism and liberal elites to flood Britain and Europe with, with what they would say non-white people to take over. And so what they're doing is they're playing on grievance politics, really. They're, they're going to people that are often angry, upset, disenfranchised, ostracized, and in many cases, right to be angry. And they're turning around and weaponizing that and saying, they're giving very easy answers to very complex questions and saying, if you're not happy about your life, you're not happy about your circumstances, the reason for that is because of immigration. The reason because that is because you are a white man who's being attacked by liberal people, trans people, feminists, etc. Is there something about this particular moment that we're living through in the UK that is is causing these groups to flourish? Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very febrile moment. And I think it's a bit of a perfect storm. The, the kind of current cost of living crisis, we know it, it's not as simple as, you know, economic downturn, rise in the far right. But we do know that when there is kind of people are suffering, when people are scared, when people are worried, you know, when there is a financial crunch, People become angry and scared and they look for answers and the far right seek to exploit those issues specifically. So the financial kind of economic situation in Britain is, is contributing to this. It also doesn't help that, you know, the Conservative Party in government have in many ways mirrored the rhetoric of the far right when it comes to things like migration and asylum seekers, you know, Swala Braverman talking about uh, invasions. And then also throw in all of this political turmoil over the last few years, you know, three prime ministers, three home secretaries, all of those things. Low levels of public trust in institutions and low levels of public uh, trust in our politicians and mainstream politics. And of course, low levels of trust about journalism and, and mainstream newspapers means that people look for alternatives. When people are scared, angry and disenfranchised, the far right understand that they pop up in those places and those communities, they target those vulnerable people. And they turn around and they say, we can fix this for you. We can change the world for you. We can make things better. I'm interested in that. You know, a lot of people on the left will say the government is is inflaming these far-right ideologies by coming up with policies like the Rwanda deportation programme or, you know, as you mentioned, using phrases like invasion when referring to asylum seekers. From your research, to what extent does that seem to be the case? You know, how do today's far-right groups seem to feel towards the current government? So I think the thing that's really important here is that, is, and it's not just the UK, I think if we look over the last 30-odd years across Europe, when the governments or mainstream political parties attempt to outflank the far-right by being harder than them on immigration or as hard as them on immigration or asylum seekers and migrants, when they try to do that, they don't outflank them. They simply just shift the centre ground on those issues further to the right. They normalise that sort of rhetoric and belief systems. They don't placate the far right. I mean, if you even think, if you look at the British far right now, they're still extremely hostile about the Conservative government often. They're extremely hostile about Suella Braverman because when she says things that even if they agree with them, they don't believe the action that they want will ever happen. So the far right continue to be angry about Conservative Party often. That, you know, they'll often welcome things like Suella Braverman's statements about invasion, but they'll usually say they're aping our tactics. They're attempting to stop us getting the votes because. Uh, they're trying to say that you know they know lots of people agree with us, but it doesn't kind of make them say, "Well, let's dial the tools and go home." What it means is that they remain the most active, organised, and dangerous element, increasingly accepted viewpoint. How much influence would you say then that the far right has in this country right now? 
I think the far right has an outsized influence compared to its size. You know, we will, when we talk about now, there's a huge societal discussion about these hotels, housing, asylum seekers. The far right three years ago was spending a huge amount of time in Dover, individuals filming boats arriving, whipping up tensions, and it starts to basically kind of create this swamp out of which these mosquitoes then emerge in the years that follow. Small groups of individuals started talking about it within the far right very passionately, and it moves up the food chain. Then Nigel Farage starts picking up and talking about it on LBC and then on, and then on GB News, and then things like the Daily Express were writing about it, and then all of a sudden the Conservative Party started to see political capital in it and started to talk more explicitly about it. So while it's not necessarily a direct line from the far right to what the Home Secretary said, there is these kind of you know, squiggled lines, if you will. Coming up, how can we discuss people's fears without encouraging the far right? Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Diane, I'm interested to know how politicians and the police are dealing with the activities of these groups. I know that late last week you went along to a meeting in Dunstable, which is near Luton, and that meeting had been organised by local MPs. It was an open forum, essentially, to listen to the concerns of people about a hotel that had been closed to move in people who were seeking asylum. Thank you for attending this evening's meeting regarding the temporary closure of the Old Palace Lodge, which has been arranged by Andrew Salou, our MP. What was that like and who was there? 
The meeting was in a historic church in Dunstable called Priory Church, and uh, it was called by the MP for Southwest Bedfordshire, Andrew Sellows. It was attended by hundreds of local residents. Almost all of them appeared to be opposed to having asylum seekers in a particular hotel in the town. However you see it, or whether you're for it or against it, the old Palace Lodge being a Grade 2 listed building with such historic and profound history in our, in our town is not the place to house any asylum seekers. In fact, it's an absolute disgrace. What? Uh, the hotel is actually directly across the road from where the meeting took place. None of the asylum seekers attended. They were very frightened, although they were, they were the subject of the meeting. The majority of those who attended appeared to be local residents. When they stood up to speak, they had to give their postcode. There were a few people who attended who were not local residents, including a small group of people from the far-right patriotic alternative. So what kinds of concerns were people sharing? People appeared concerned about their own security being at risk as a, as a result of the asylum seekers arriving. And then you're telling us that the biometrics are being done. Those biometrics are only as good as the country they're coming from if they've committed a crime and that country actually submits those biometrics into a national database. If not, we don't know if they've committed any crimes. Yep, fair. One resident asked if uh, all the asylum seekers were tagged. What I would like to know is if these illegal immigrants, because as far as I'm concerned, that's what they are, um, yeah, do they have tags on? Have the police tagged them so we know where they are in the town and the country? Others raised more general concerns, sexual harassment of young girls. I've also a friend who lives very close to the building who has seen recently since these men have been here, young girls and women harassed in the town. Um, and the MP said he'd check this out with the now, police and these reports were not correct and, and the allegations actually related to a date before the asylum seekers had arrived in the area. Before a single asylum seeker had arrived in that hotel, I was, people contacted me to say there's a group of asylum seekers outside the Priory School. Not true, because they hadn't come. And at one point, patriotic alternative activist Wesley Russell, who is not a local resident in Dunstable, spoke at length and, and challenged the MP. So we know that they're by definition illegal immigrants, which technically makes them criminals and they should be treated as such. They shouldn't be put up in five-star hotels. They should be in cells and they should be told they are not leaving until they pay for their ticket back. And um, the two had an angry exchange and after that, uh, Wesley Russell walked out of the meeting. I'm glad you weren't in charge of this country's asylum policy when the Jews were trying to get here from Nazi Germany. Okay. I think what you have said is offensive, sir. I'm very sorry. We okay, let's move to the next question, please.
We're going to move to the next question. We're going to go to the gentleman that's standing up there. So you've had your say. Is there a way of holding these type of forums that will allow people to air their thoughts and fears, however justified, without those thoughts developing into protests? What sense did you get of how helpful having that sort of meeting was to people? The MP who did a lot of the talking, MP for South West Bedfordshire, Andrew Sellers, he was putting forward a fact-based response to try to reassure local residents that their fears of asylum seekers were unfounded. He said he checked with police and uh, no increased crime of, of any description had been reported since the arrival of the asylum seekers. And we haven't heard the same kinds of, of fact-based reassurances provided by the Home Secretary or, or other members of the government. Why do you think they're not doing that at the moment? I think in the case of government, they're quite happy for asylum seekers to be blamed and scapegoated. The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. That avoids the government being blamed for any, any failures in immigration policy, so it suits the government's purposes. I believe that... Labour doesn't want to be too outspoken about this because many of the constituencies where discontent against asylum seekers is, is rearing its head are Labour-held constituencies. So Labour has been quite cautious. I don't really care. Um, these are not difficult questions. Your leader says, uh, in some circumstances, um, it is the right thing to do to tag uh, illegal immigrants so we quote know where they are do you support that policy do you think that's a right thing to do i've just answered that and did you say yes, yes I, I he was it yes or... and we should support them so the answer is yes in certain circumstances you would support I, I, tagging I of illegal immigrants. yes i can't be more yeah i can't diane be you've been reporting for years on migration and the situation that many people seeking asylum in this country are facing Looking at what happened at Knowsley and the types of reports that we're reading from Hope Not Hate and organisations like them, how would you assess the situation with the far right at the moment and the, and the kind of threat that they're posing to, to people seeking asylum at the moment in the UK? Yeah, I, I feel that what happened in Knowsley was a sea change and a wake-up call that a lot more needs to be done to stop the far right uh, and, and its pernicious narratives from gaining an even stronger foothold. This is a watershed moment and government needs to take action to stop things going any further than they've gone already. Joe, far right ideologies will probably always exist to some extent in our society, but it's clear that at the moment they are being allowed to flourish online and in person. Whose responsibility is it to try and lead people away from these sorts of ideologies and this sort of action? I think it's everyone's responsibility. I mean, I think one of the things we have to guard against is this kind of creeping notion that fascism and anti-fascism are kind of two forms of extreme fighters on the margin. 
you know, it's not fascism is an extreme ideology on the margin, and anti-fascism should be a societal consensus. So I think we all have an obligation, and that could be to make sure we're standing up and protecting people within our communities, people that we live around, the people that we work with, that are being targeted, making sure that we stand up and, and, and stand next to them. But also that we challenge views within our own friendship groups, with our own families, etc. And, and people, you know, one of the ways that we win people over is by finding the trusted messengers and giving them the message than saying, you know, speak to your friends, speak to your family. So we all have an obligation, broadly speaking, to do whatever we can, as long as we feel like we can do it safely. But then there is, of course, kind of more formal obligations, which is the government's role in terms of de-radicalization, prevention of terrorism, te- prevention of extremism. The state has a role in this to play as well. But it's not like the state can just wash its hands of it. We can't arrest terrorists within the far right. The only people that can do that, of course, are the police. We are in the majority here. These remain a minority of people in in society. And so actually, if we come together around this specific issue and say we disagree with them, we know it's harmful, then we win. And we've seen that time and time again through the post-war period. The only way we lose these battles is by not fighting. Joe, thank you very much. This has been fascinating. Thanks for having me. That was Jo Mulhall from Hope Not Hate and Diane Taylor. You can read her work at theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and sound designed by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.